Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I mean, it's quite funny. When I was writing the book, when friends would say, you know, what are you working on? And I said a book about hands. My artist friends would always immediately say, oh, great, a book about art. And my psychoanalyst friends would always say, oh, great, a book about masturbation. The the association seemed so intractable. I wrote one of the chapters in the book about masturbation because it seems that this is something that's very important in terms of understanding the hand. First of all, because it kind of refutes all the grand claims made about how important the hand is because the idea is the hand always feels itself feeling and philosophers have made a lot of this. But in fact, isn't masturbation a counterexample? Because when people are masturbating, it's very unusual that they can feel their hand. So why do we have this sensory extinction of the hand in masturbation? And secondly, as you just pointed out, masturbation, we tend to associate it with pleasure, but the more we think about it, isn't it more to do with pain and loss? Think about the moments when people masturbate you'll find that very, very often these are moments when there's been some kind of disappointment, perhaps a conflict at the office, perhaps a telephone call or a letter or an email that you hoped to receive that didn't, a domestic problem, a work problem, a problem in your life. The more you kind of micro-analyze the context of someone starting to masturbate, I think you'll nearly always find not just arousal, but rather the fact that sexual arousal is a response to experiences of pain and loss and in many cases anxiety. I think the reason that so many people use the internet to access pornography and masturbate to it is because of the increase in anxiety due precisely to being on kind of constant call, constant demand through the internet. Is the hand the visible part of the brain? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack that question with psychoanalyst and author Dr. Darian Leader, whose latest publication, Hands, What We Do With Them and Why, has just been published by Hamish Hamilton, where Darian writes, It's difficult not to notice that historically, as we move beyond the cigarette in our increasing tobacco-free worlds, something has miraculously taken its place. Almost out of nowhere, mobile phones now colonise exactly the same social and bodily spaces. Some years ago, a man described a very awkward situation. He was smoking when his date leaned forward to kiss him. As the kiss became more passionate, he couldn't bring himself to extinguish the cigarette and felt an immoral oscillation between the wish to keep dragging and the wish to prolong the meeting of the lips. If this double attachment could trouble him, how common it is today to find the same situation but where the choice is not between partner and cigarette, but partner and mobile phone. Darian goes on to argue the mums and dads on their mobiles in the playground aren't necessarily bad parents. They are just doing what humans unremittedly do, which is to find ways through religion, craft, technology and music to be somewhere else. So, have human beings always kept their hands busy? Hi Susan, it's Darian Leader here from London. I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm also author of a number of books. The first one was called Why Do Women Write More Letters Than They Post? Then there was Promises Lovers Make, then Freud's Footnotes, and then more recently I've been looking at questions of depression and mourning in a book called The New Black, 
What is Madness?, which tries to elaborate a theory of what madness is and how one can respond to it. Strictly Bipolar, which looks at the rise of the category of bipolar disorder in recent times. And now a new book called Hands, What We Do With Them and Why. Darian, really well done on the book. It's such a curious and stimulating read. It, it brings up so many different possibilities and ideas to do with hands. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. I might throw you a big wide open question to start off with. What does holding hands signal to you? What does it mean to you? Holding hands has signaled historically some very different things that today in Western cultures it could signify intimacy and friendship, belonging to a family or being in a couple. At other times it can have indicated a more formal relation between people, either something that that isn't intimate or at other historical moments something that's very intimate. So it doesn't always mean the same thing. It's the code and gestures, the gestures of the body, especially those using hands, have always been subject to historical and geographical variations. That's one of the fascinating things I found during the research for the book. The English are always considered to be cold. They don't use their hands when they talk. They don't touch each other when they're talking. But then go back a few hundred years and people that lived on the continent were ridiculing the English because they couldn't stop hugging and kissing and touching each other. So things have really changed over time. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things about travel is that when you get on a plane and find yourself wherever you are in the world, how we gesture with our hands in different countries and how we use our hands, it's also regionally based, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And at the end of the 60s, a sociologist travelled to many parts of the world and looked at people conversing in coffee shops for a period of around an hour. He found that In France, couples would touch each other while talking for about 100 times in an hour during the conversation, whereas at the English coffee shops he visited, they didn't touch each other once. Now, I think things have probably changed by now, um, 40, 50 years later, but culturally, there are big, big differences between what we communicate via our hands and what we don't. Do you think in some way that human progress can be measured by just looking and examining what we do with our hands? Well, that's a very interesting point. Stephen Jay Gould once pointed out that paleontologists, when they were looking for bigger and bigger skulls that would indicate bigger and bigger brains to try and chart the process of human evolution, that they'd been barking up the wrong tree, as it were. He thought that really they should have been looking at the hands because he argued that changes in the brain didn't precede changes in the bodily frame, but actually would have come afterwards. And so the real important changes would have come in the hands, which would then have generated changes in the brain. And this is something that philosophers and paleontologists and evolutionary theorists still disagree about today. The kind of chicken and the egg question, what came first, changes in the hand or changes in the brain? So it's a very old philosophical debate. It's such a surprising um, book, Darren. And I was just wondering, what were you setting out to resolve or to understand when you started researching this book, Hans? You're a psychoanalyst, so presumably some of that was coming into it. But there's so much at play when we think of Hans, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an unusual topic for a psychoanalyst to reflect on. But the book came about for a very simple reason, that for several years, I'd be phoned up by journalists, magazine writers and so on, asking for a quote on how the digital age had changed the way that human beings relate to each other. Were relationships more transitory, more grounded, more stable, less stable? What does it mean to be on social media all day? How has this changed who we are and how we relate to each other? 
people were asking me this question all the time. And it seemed to me that there were some very good answers to this. Our social theorists, anthropologists, psychologists, who've all studied these questions and, and written very well about it. For me, what was really interesting was the fact that whatever changes there might be due to our digital world, what seems so strange about it is the fact that it keeps people's hands furiously busy. If you go to a playground, everyone is swiping, scrolling, texting. If you're on the train, on the bus, in a cafe, that's what people are doing. They're using their hands almost compulsively to send messages, to check, to update a Facebook page. The hands are constantly employed. And this led me to look at the history of how people have used their hands. So essentially, our hands represent power and agency, if you will, that there are tools to engage with the world, is it? Well, one could argue exactly the opposite, that the hands have generally been seen historically as precisely that, the divine spark present within the human body, the hands, our executive organs of agency, they allow us to change the world, to act on the world, they set us apart from beasts. But then, when you think about what people actually do with their hands, they fiddle, they scratch, they curl, they do all sorts of things that they don't want to do, even when let's say you're on a dinner date or talking to someone, you're supposed to be focusing on the person you're with, and instead your hands are itching to check your Facebook page, to send a text, to check something on your phone, as if the hands have to be continually employed. So in a sense, they both carry out our will and act against our will. They have this paradoxical position in the human body of both working for us and against us. I was interested to read that the hands are mentioned, I think it's over 2,000 times in the Old Old Testament. That's so surprising and compared to any other body part. And I know we we talk about in God's hands and that that kind of idea of whether we're being cradled and protected. It's, It's really quite something, isn't it? It is indeed. The hand appears with an extraordinary frequency in the Old Testament. It's there a lot in the New Testament as well. And then in biblical texts and commentaries over the years, the hand is often equated with divine agency. And even today, several medical societies around the world have a badge, a kind of logo, where you have a hand, which originally would have been the divine hand, guiding a human hand. And what's so fascinating is that today, in an era when we understand perfectly well the importance of the brain and the mind in supposedly controlling the actions of our body, people still think that the hand is the ultimate agency of control. We speak of things being in God's hands rather than in God's brain, for example. Now, one of the aspects of the book that um, was particularly revealing is the idea or the concept that you talk about in relation to the autonomy addiction. And you argue the shopping addictions, sex addictions, internet addictions and porn addictions that fill the diagnostic marketplace have become seen as addictions because they are apparently not under our conscious control. But the real addiction that lies behind them is autonomy addiction, the illusion that we can be masters of ourselves. The more we buy into this, the more mood disorders there will be. Can you talk me through that? Because I'm not sure did I fully understand that. In the contemporary language of psychiatry, of psychology, both professional and pop media, you'll find almost every week a new addiction is invented. Internet addiction, mobile phone addiction, cinema addiction, sex addiction, shopping addiction, gambling addiction. Everything becomes an addiction. Now, we can say, is this a strange new characteristic of modern society that there's this sudden explosion of addictions? Or rather... Let's think about it more carefully. When do things start to be labelled as addictions? 
when they are seen as no longer being under conscious control. But that implies that we ought to be able to consciously control all our behavior, which is a very, very new idea. Traditionally, historically, no one would think that human beings can be perfectly masters of themselves. And, and you could argue that one important aspect of religion is precisely to explain and make sense of the fact that we can't. Today, there's this increasing idea that all human life is subject to conscious control. So any behavior that we don't intend consciously, whether it's biting our nails or checking our phone or going on the internet, these things become addictions for that reason. But the real addiction behind that, I argue in the book, is an addiction to this illusory idea that we can be fully masters of ourselves. It's an addiction to the idea of autonomy. It's such an interesting area, isn't it? Because ultimately we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're, yes. we're trying to understand our world in completely the wrong way, isn't it? Exactly. And today things have gone so far that even death is seen as a kind of mistake that people made. You know, if you're able to do it, you need to have a great diet, go to the gym a lot, exercise a lot, have calm time when you're unstressed, all, all the things that modern society sells us, as if everything can be subject of a conscious choice. And obviously, this ignores the majority of the world's population who are in no position to eat what they want or to relax when they want or to not work when they want or to go to the gym. And most people's lives are incredibly difficult. It's more of a question of getting through a day than being able to choose exactly what one does. But there's this cultural imperative to make life identical with a series of choices, which has the paradoxical effect of just allowing us to prolong life. So we're spending most of our lives doing things just in order to live longer. And we're really not then being present to ourselves and, and, and where we are in the world. But it's funny by developing choices or by perceiving that we have all these choices to make and all this, this sense of agency that then we haven't really conceived really our position in the world at all because it's all based on avoidance really, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And with the idea of choice, it seems in modern society, we're constantly given more and more choices. What are you going to buy in the supermarket? Which electricity or gas provider should you choose? which TV broadband network you should use. The fact that the choices are, are, are so, there are so many of them now that it becomes more and more difficult to actually make a choice. And even once we've chosen, we then are encouraged in a few months to choose again, taking up more and more time and energy and creating more and more stress. As a psychoanalyst, is it possible to sit still? I don't think so. I've asked a lot of people about this, colleagues, um, acquaintances in the analytic world, Everyone does something when they're listening. And this is a very interesting thing, because historically, again, most of the research on how we use our hands is to do with the use of the hands in communicating, punctuating speech, emphasizing a point, trying to convey an idea to an audience. Very, very little research was done on how we use our body when we listen. And I'm arguing in the book that actually the body, and in particular the hands, are crucial when we're listening. Imagine if you're on a long telephone conversation and someone is blabbing away at you, you'll find yourself doodling, doing something, picking your nails, using your, your hands in some way. Or if you're in a meeting or a lecture, maybe it's not the most interesting one, you're a little bit bored, you're going to be using your hands to do things. So the experience of prolonged listening always involves hand use. And I was surprised when I started to do the research on what analysts do with their hands, you find that the single most common reported activity is not, as one might imagine, taking notes, but rather knitting. And it's funny, not all um, hand movements or hand gestures are sexual, sure they're not, even though they could appear to be. 
Now, there's a wide range of hand gestures. Many of them are conscious, but a lot of them, perhaps most of them, aren't under our conscious control. We're doing things with our hands that we're not able to predict, to control, to master. And we can see a kind of arc here where we use our hands, we occupy our hands with what I call hand technology, mobile phones, computer keyboards, pens and paper when we're doodling. This technology stops the hand from returning to the body. Take away the mobile, the computer keyboard, the pen and paper, or with children, take away their Lego or their loom bands. And then they'll start scratching, picking, rubbing, curling hairs, all the, the different human activities that people do without really wanting to do. The hand, as it were, returns to the body, and hand technology defers that return. And in where can we say that that correlates to levels of anxiety and stress, I wonder? You know, when I'm, let's say, standing in the cinema queue in the evening time or I could be sitting in a restaurant or at theatre or whatever I'm doing, see people furiously texting or fidgeting around the place. And I sometimes make these assumptions that they're a little bit tense or they're preoccupied or nervous. Yes, that's right. I think when one examines things more closely, one finds that very often the frantic texting, scrolling and swiping that they're doing on their phones is actually not necessarily a communication with anyone in particular. They might just be typing random letters or numbers into their phones. They might not be sending a message to anyone, but it might be a way of demonstrating that one is busy, that one is important, that one has got some kind of mission, that one's got a purpose, because it's very difficult to be in a public place without the idea that one's there for a purpose. This question has been beautifully studied by the sociologist Erwin Goffman in the States. I talk about his work a lot in the book. One of the other very interesting aspects of texting in a public place and using a mobile or a computer when you're with other people or surrounded by people is the fact that it might seem to be, in a way, impolite or strange or odd, a way of disconnecting. But the more we think about it, human life has always been about not just connecting with others, but also fundamentally about disconnecting. And during the research of the book, I was fascinated to find that for hundreds and hundreds of years, societies have always produced objects to be used in the hands, fans, gloves, snuff boxes, cigarettes, mobile phones. And at every different historical period in which these objects were were omnipresent in society, people would say, why on earth can't you just be with another person? Why do you need to fiddle with your snuff box, fiddle with your gloves, have a fan in your hand all the time? As if hands have always been kept busy and these objects have allowed us to be at a distance, to abstract oneself from the over-proximity with other people. You have some very interesting stuff on um, when people are attending or when patients are attending their doctor's clinic and when they walk through the door and they merely are given um, a prescription, but they don't actually get a proper going over as in a hand to hand check. And I laughed when I read that, but you you write something that, you know, people can feel very cheated and deprived if they don't get a proper body look over with the hand, whether it's the hand on the stomach, the legs, the chest, whatever it is. But it makes so much sense because we need that touch, don't we? Yeah, I mean, the healing hand has had a long history, starting in each of our individual lives with our few hours after birth when we're cradled in our mother's hands. And that obviously will develop over the first few months and years of life in in whatever form it takes with each individual person. But there'll always be physical contact. And you can argue that you can give a baby food and drink, but without some kind of touch, it won't survive. Can I ask you... uh personal question. You can try, <laughs> do, yeah. Do you think that weekly or monthly massage 
can replace either one lack of sex or two prescription medication for depression? There have actually been quite a few studies on this and they've all had very, very positive results. You know, the, the massage is incredibly important. But then when you look at the people that are being studied, most of the people that can afford to have a massage have probably got a lot of other things in their life that set them apart from other people. They might have health insurance. They might be able to have a good diet. They might have time to go to the gym. So in the end, you can't really say that having a massage is going to prolong your life, make you take fewer meds. I mean, if you read that in a paper and said, okay, great, I'm going to have a massage every week, but actually you couldn't afford it, you're lying there having the benefit of the massage at the same time, getting more and more stressed about the fact that you can't afford the treatment. So you have to look at the individual case. When you look at what's happening at the level of the body, everything I've read on this seems to indicate that massage is definitely beneficial and helpful. It does a lot of things Again, set that against the individual person's history. If that person had never been touched in an affectionate way as a child, you could argue that having the massage will fill in the lack of their early childhood. But you could also see that in many cases, it does the opposite, that it will remind the person of what they lacked earlier on, and so might produce a feeling of depletion or sadness afterwards. So I think you really have to look at the individual case here. Can I ask you about the identity of perception? You bring up Freud a number of times in hands. Yeah, let's start with an everyday example. When little kids, you know, maybe between two and four, watch TV, they often get absolutely delighted when they see the same thing again. When they see, let's say, Thomas the Tank Engine or My Little Pony or Hello Kitty, where they see the image again, there's a surge of joy and excitement less than actually watching the episodes, which might, in fact, be very boring. But the surge of excitement and joy is it seeing, is it recognizing the same thing again, which is, of course, the principle of how logos work in adult life, where clothes, brandings, and so on, show us a particular label that we're supposed to try and refine. But with children, you, you really see this in its purest form. The joy and the pleasure at just recognizing the same thing again. Now, take this back to our even earlier life when we're breastfeeding or feeding from the bottle in the first few months, before the kid is interested in Thomas the Tank Engine or Hello Kitty or anything like that. Freud argues that there's a difference between the search for the satisfaction of need, like hunger and thirst, and the need for the repetition of satisfaction. Now, those are two very, very different things. Let me try and explain further. It's the idea there's a difference between satisfying a bodily need like hunger or thirst and trying to refine, trying to recreate the sensations, the pleasure sensations that were associated, that were connected with that original feeling of satisfying the need. And obviously those two things are quite different. People who use drugs often talk about their search for the first hit, trying to refine that first moment to make a future hit identical with the first one, just as in adult life, people might always be trying to find the same high they might have got from an earlier sexual experience or from something more anodyne, like going on a nice holiday or, to use your example, having a nice massage, trying to refine the same thing again. That's what Freud means by the identity of perception. It's the search for what's the same as before. And in general, that's almost impossible to actually satisfy. We can hardly ever refine something 
that matches completely an earlier experience. Yeah, replicating any form of experience, whether it's food, sex, uh, life, music, it, you can't do it. But do you think that those who are more prone to that quest, do you think that they will be more prone to, let's say, alcohol abuse or drug abuse or sex addictions or whatever it is? I, I don't think one can say because the things, the areas in which people try to refine the same can be very different. It could be through alcohol, it could be through a drug, it could be through heroin, it could be through reading, it could be through an exercise. There are lots and lots of different ways in which, thankfully, people try and refine the same thing. But I think it's really important to recognise this as a basic tendency in human life. Does anyone kiss without doing something with their hands? I loved that line, Darian. Can you talk yeah, me through it all? It? I mean, why do people have to always use their hands when they have some kind of sexual encounter? And, and the idea of not using one's hands seems so odd, so strange, that we have to try and make sense of that in, in a way obvious. It's always the obvious facts that need explanation. Kissing would seem to be an oral enjoyment, the enjoyment of the mouth, but it's always associated with the hand movement. And and this kind of chimes with the much broader question, why do we always have try to get satisfaction at different registers at the same time? We might be watching a movie or TV, so there's an enjoyment at the, the level of our eyes, what we're seeing, a vision. But at the same time, we might be eating something compulsively, we might be grazing, we might be eating popcorn or nachos or whatever it's going to be. Why isn't it enough just to either eat the nachos or the popcorn or just to watch the TV or the film? Why do human beings always try and associate two different kinds of satisfaction? That's one of the questions that runs throughout the book. Can I ask you about your philosophy of masturbation? You write, masturbation is also widely misunderstood to be an access to pleasure. And you talk about pain and loss. That's right. I mean, it's quite funny. When I was writing a book, when friends would say, you know, what are you working on? And I said a book about hands. My artist friends would always immediately say, oh, great, a book about art. And my psychoanalyst friends would always say, oh, great, a book about masturbation. But the association seemed so intractable. I wrote one of the chapters in the book about masturbation because it seems that this is something that's very important in terms of understanding the hand. First of all, because it kind of refutes all the grand claims made about how important the hand is, because the the idea is the hand always feels itself feeling, and philosophers have made a lot of this. But in fact, isn't masturbation a counterexample? Because when people are masturbating, it's very unusual that they can feel their hand. So why do we have this sensory extinction of the hand in masturbation? And secondly, as you just pointed out, masturbation we tend to associate it with pleasure, but the more we think about it, isn't it more to do with pain and loss? Think about the moments when people masturbate. You'll find that very, very often, these are moments when there's been some kind of disappointment, perhaps a conflict at the office, perhaps a telephone call or a letter or an email that you hoped to receive that didn't, a domestic problem, a work problem, a problem in your love life. The more you kind of microanalyze the context of someone starting to masturbate, I think you'll nearly always find not just arousal, but rather the fact that sexual arousal is a response to experiences of pain and loss and in many cases anxiety. I think the reason that so many people use the internet to access pornography and masturbate to it is because of the increase in anxiety due precisely to being on kind of constant call, constant demand through the internet. So how do you think, Darian, parents should deal with their children masturbating? 
Do you think that they should look at some of the issues like anxiety or some of the kind of psychological background? I don't, I don't think so. I think, I mean, that's more interesting to think about if you're trying to make sense of why humans masturbate and when they do, to see it as as a defence against anxiety rather than as a kind of pure access to pleasure. I think, you know, the, the, with sex, there's always something, and with bodily experiences, you know, when a child gets its first erections or its first engorgements, with all these sexual, early sexual experiences, there'll always be something alien and traumatic about them. And I don't think there's any formula or recipe that can normalise that. I think sexuality always has a dimension, a traumatic dimension to it, something unexpected, something that can't be entirely processed. And that, you know, in families, when parents encounter this, they just have to do the best they can to try to give some kind of meaning to the changes in the child's body. It's interesting, if you look at the the current vogue of superhero movies, almost every month now there's a huge, big-budget Hollywood movie about someone who experiences changes in their body. Spider-Man, Superman, all these superheroes are people who are surprised by what their body can do. And you can see that as a way of basically trying to process the question of what happens to boys and girls at puberty. Their body changes and they need to make sense of it. Yeah, you've great stuff on fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty and the like and all these funny openings that suddenly materialise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, indeed. When when Sleeping Beauty finds a hidden secret room in the castle, which was which no one else had known about, and then touches a spindle and blood is produced, it's very difficult not to see that as either menstrual blood or blood from the rupture of the hymen in the, the secret room having an anatomical resonance. Is it too much of a stretch to apply your pain and loss framework on pornography? I think it's exactly the same thing. You know, again, look at the individual case. When patients talk about using pornography, it's very important to find out when and why they've used it, at what moment, what exactly was happening in the half hour, the hour, the two hours before that. And again, you'll always find that there's something that the person wants to stop thinking about or to avoid that our bodies and our minds aren't easy things to live with, to cohabit with. So we're constantly trying to find ways to dull, to lessen the anxiety, the agitation, the tension that that inhabits us.